0: Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan.
1: And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about the air in London. For this episode, we are so thrilled to welcome our guest, Dr. Rena Jones. Dr. Jones is an epidemiologist with master's and doctoral degrees in epidemiology from the State University of New York. She's on the faculty at the Yale School of Public Health, and in her day job is a researcher at the National Cancer Institute. She publishes frequently on the topics of environment and health. She's also a diehard Austin fan, and so is the perfect guest to help us discuss Regency air quality and the debate between Isabella and Mr. Woodhouse.
2: Welcome, Rena. Thank you so much. I'm really pleased to be here getting to combine my two super nerdy passions, (laughs) Austin and epidemiology, of course. And I want to note that I'm here in my personal capacity, not as part of my job, and much like some of my snark on social media, my views are my own.
1: So getting into our topic for today, we are looking at the novel Emma, and specifically a scene where Emma's older sister Isabella, her husband John Knightley, and their children have come to Hartfield for Christmas. Isabella and Mr. Woodhouse are busy comparing apothecaries... I mean, why not? That's my favorite thing to do. (laughs) And discussing their health when the subject of air quality comes up.
0: All right. And so to start this out, we have Mr. Woodhouse kind of expressing his concern about Isabella and their place in London. Ah, my poor dear child. The truth is that in London, it is always a sickly season. Nobody is healthy in London. Nobody can be. It is a dreadful thing to have you forced to live there so far off and the air so bad. No, indeed, we're not at all in bad air. Our part of London is very superior to most others. You must not confound us with the London in general, my dear sir. The neighborhood of Brunswick Square is very different from almost all the rest. We are so very airy. I should be unwilling, I own, to live in any other part of the town. There is hardly any other that I could be satisfied to have my children in. But we are so remarkably airy. Mr. Wingfield thinks the vicinity of Brunswick Square decidedly the most favorable as to air. Oh, the the dueling (laughs) apothecaries. It's one of my favorites.
1: (laughs) Before we get into pelting Rena with our many questions about air, (laughs) just a little bit of geographic definition setting. So Brunswick Square is an area in London in what is now known as Bloomsbury. At the time of Emma, it was a recent development and was not considered a fashionable neighborhood. The wealthy and elite of society tended to live in the more established West End neighborhoods of Mayfair and Marylebone, the Knightleys could probably have afforded to live in the more stylish neighborhoods, but Brunswick Square has the advantage of being close to the city of London, where all the business was happening, as well as a lot of courts. So John Knightley, which should not surprise any of us who are familiar with his character, he's a man who likes a short commute, and he's not here for frippery, you know?
0: He is <laughs> no nonsense about this. It's
1: close and convenient to work. That's what matters.
0: So Rena, we are very excited to have you talk to us specifically about the air quality in London at this time. They're right at the midst of the Industrial Revolution. So, what is what is the air quality like around this period?
2: Not great. (laughs) So, yeah. So, this you know, this is early 19th century, right? So, we're right in the midst of the Industrial Revolution, as you said, which is really like an 80-year period from the mid 1700s to the mid 1800s or so. Basically, it's a period of immense urban growth, the building of cities, the concentration of housing other kinds of buildings industry people and the modernization and development of that industry so things like mechanized production in factories paving of roads which was a big deal it could really reduce you know trips from one end of the country to uh, to the other from weeks to days for instance city lighting was big so around the time Emma is set London had just moved from oil-burning lamps to using coal gas lamps, which were a major source of air pollution. And really underpinning all of this growth is the burning of coal. It was very frequently used as a source of lighting and heat. And the product of that is a lot of smoke and fumes. And in London in particular, a lot of this was trapped in the very still air. It kind of kept it low to the ground where people were breathing it in. And these were referred to when that happened, when the air would get trapped down the ground, it was referred to as fogs. So London fog is not just a coat, it's a thing. (laughs) And this is where you can actually see the particles in the smoke, in the air, and people were breathing it in, as I said. And the fog includes particles as well as sometimes a poisonous gas, sulfur dioxide. The air in London was sometimes referred to as pea soup because it was thick and sort of yellow-greenish. It sounds disgusting, (laughs) and it was. Delightful. Good grief. Indeed. You know, the air quality in London was quite bad during these peak times, particularly for people really right in the heart of the city. So Mr. Woodhouse maybe has a bit (laughs) of a point here then. (laughs) He's not wrong. He's not wrong.
1: And I would imagine this is happening during the winter season, so air quality is probably worse, right? Because people are burning more fuel to heat their homes. Yeah.
2: And the cold air actually serves to trap the pollution at the ground level. And there was a very famous episode of that in actually the 1950s, London, where the cold air sort of trapped everything at the ground level for four or five days and killed many thousands of people.
1: Talk to us a little about miasma theory and how that might be playing into this discussion and possibly the concerns that Mr. Woodhouse has. Yeah,
2: sure. So the miasma theory was the prevailing understanding and, and one that had lasted centuries, right? Like BC, the time of Hippocrates. This was around for a very long time before uh, the germ theory replaced it. So the idea was that disease was caused by a miasma, which is just a Greek word that literally means pollution, but was used colloquially to refer to bad air miasma or bad air was thought to be caused by sort of putrid things rotting organic matter and so being able to smell something in the air was sort of an indicator that the air was bad and in london as you can imagine the peak of the industrial revolution there's all sorts of bad smells from bodies to you know the pollution itself and they weren't totally wrong right odors sometimes signify germs and you know that sort of thing so it's not totally wrong so bad air was quite literally correct in some cases. But the germ theory of disease where we began to understand that actual pathogens, bacteria, viruses, and the like could cause disease and replaced miasma theory, it was not widely accepted until the late 1800s. So at the time of, you know, Austin's works and Emma that we're talking about, bad air was sort of the prevailing thought and one did not want to come in contact with bad air. But when people in Austin's works are referring to bad air they're not necessarily referring to the pollution itself, the smog, the smoke, they they may be, that's certainly part of it in in the London landscape. That overall vibe in the city is is of having dirty air, lots of people, crowded conditions, smells, etc. So spending a lot of time in the city where one could not get fresh air was certainly not, not something people wanted to do. And that we see across Austin's books. But London, of course, had all of the allure, right, of high society and wealth and access to all of the great things. So people wanted to spend time there. But they also recognized that they should probably spend time away for their health. And so that's where we see the references to, you know, spending time in Bath or other places to get that fresh air.
0: Because so many of these places, I mean, Bath isn't coastal, but so many of the places that are considered kind of health resorts around this time are coastal. Is there anything were there any theories that coastal air was maybe superior to even just country air? I Do not Do you know any of that?
2: Generally speaking, the idea of the winds sort of being oh, stronger okay. in coastal areas, and this is actually true, you know, uh, wind does sort of move pollution, but it, it can trap it as well as move it out. But I, I think, yeah, just, you know, in terms of relative levels of freshness, <laughs> um, the sea was certainly something in Austin's works that seemed to be superior, generally speaking.
1: It's like in addition to this, you know, concern over the London air. There's also that concern when they're at the Crown Inn. And Everyone is so concerned about the drafts coming in. So was that also like a, oh, watch out for that cold
2: air? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And this is a little bit how you kind of know germ theory wasn't really gelled at that point, right? People really equated getting exposed to cold air to getting a cold. And we we know that that's not true. I mean, yes, in some regards, getting a draft or, you know, being cold would suppress your immune system. There's some logic behind that. But certainly in Emma, yeah, they were planning to use the crown as a site for a ball. And there was all of the concern about having to move through a, a passage to sort of get people to have enough room to dance. And everyone, Mrs. Weston, was very concerned about the possibility of young people being exposed to drafts. And and certainly that would depend on your individual constitution and, and how vulnerable you might be to such drafts. But that's another air that was certainly not so much pollution, but certainly cold air was something to be avoided at the time.
1: And imagine if some unscrupulous youth dares to open a window when no one is looking. <laughs> open a
2: window. <laughs>
0: the sheer negligence involved in that kind of activity is just staggering. (laughs) (laughs) exactly. (laughs) So to some extent, we've already kind of, we've already kind of addressed this, but we want to know like how valid are Mr. Woodhouse's concerns? Are there any real health effects that resulted specifically from being in London air or in other kind of large cities? Because we had, there are several other industrial cities that are starting to boom around this time as well, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. He's He's got he's on to something. He, <laughs> in a general sense, the concerns are valid. The main consequence of the air pollution in London was a lot of respiratory illness. And if you know, we didn't collect statistics on health in quite the same way back at that time. But what we do know is that respiratory deaths and infectious disease related deaths were the most common causes. And based on our modern understanding of air pollution and health, things like consumption, tuberculosis, and other kinds of respiratory diseases, like if you had asthma, would certainly be exacerbated from air pollution exposure. The one thing he didn't sort of think about or talk about, which again is understandable, but and we sort of understand today, is that it's really about how much exposure you get. It's not just that you live in London, but how much time do you spend outside, you know, actually breathing the air. But all told, was onto something. And, and certainly the data show from modern epidemiology that air pollution exposure is bad. And I did a little digging to look at what the levels were actually like back in this time. And although, you know, we didn't have air pollution monitoring back in um, the time of Emma, of course, but using some modeling approaches, the levels of air pollution or the particles in London's air were about 40 times higher at the time than they are today. Wow! And at the peak of the industrial revolution, I mean, that's really, really staggering. And it it may shock you to know that we still reach those levels today in certain parts of the world during various sort of specific circumstances of temperature and, you know, emissions and that sort of thing. But what's interesting is that in, in modern world, where levels are much, much, much lower, we still see relationships between air pollution and respiratory and cardiovascular diseases. So, You know, you can imagine the burden of illness associated with those pollution episodes in London were considerable.
1: So what else about the state of epidemiology in this era, especially as it pertains to air quality, should we be aware of or keeping in mind,
2: especially, you know, in the context of of Emma? Well, strictly speaking, modern epidemiology wasn't a thing until a little later, like mid-1800s during the cholera epidemic, when a physician named John Snow did some sleuthing and sort of figured out the cause and led to an intervention and got rid of the epidemic, which was amazing. But at the time of Emma or, you know, folks in Austin's time didn't have the terminology we use today, but they were, you know, they were moving in the right direction, I think, you know, farther away from miasma and closer to germ theory And it's not like they were totally off base with the idea of doing things to sort of shore up your immune system, you know, like people with vulnerable constitutions sort of laying low and staying warm and, you know, all of those things we still sort of do today. Certainly, air pollution exposure could exacerbate illness, as I said. So they recognized that the air in London was dirty uh, relative to the countryside, and that's certainly true. But one way we know that germ theory hadn't quite taken hold yet at the time, and this you see throughout Austin's works, is that when someone was sick, people would visit them in their sick room and spend time with them. So in Emma, Harriet gets a sore throat and has to miss the dinner at Randall's, for instance. And the quote is, Emma sat with her as long as she could to attend her and Mrs. Goddard's unavoidable absences and raise her spirits by representing how much Mr. Elton's would be depressed when he knew her state. You know, so she spent hours with her while she had this cold. You know, not thinking she was going to pick it up herself, right? So you see that in in plenty of the books where it's just not clear that you know people are sort of spreading germs in that way. So they had some to learn, even yeah. though they were headed in the right direction. Well, and okay,
0: so so I also have to just ask because I think sometimes in historical fiction there's a tendency to I think this is accurate that around this time Edinburgh is kind of on the cutting edge of, of medicine in Great Britain. Again, I'm getting this from like not factual data. So I'm curious, is is this also where we're starting to see a little bit more focus on cleanliness when, when visiting people that are sick? You know, this idea of like, there might not be correlating it with germs, but like cleanliness is finally starting to be a little bit more standardized in medicine at this point to kind of stop spread?
2: Yeah, I think as the the transition to the germ theory becoming more widely accepted was happening around this time, um, not just in the UK, but like in Paris, which was sort of the pinnacle Mm, of modern medicine, you know, going back ages. Yes, cleanliness was a big component of that. And there are certainly records that, you know, any any modern epidemiologist learns about in their sort of epi 101 type courses that examples back in the early 1700s of where, you know, people were focused on that sort of thing. So it's not as if it didn't exist, but just sort of the collective understanding and reasoning, you know, moving towards the idea of, you know, okay, hygiene, sure. you know, that's a part of this didn't really start to gel and, until that time. Okay.
0: So what do we think Mr. Woodhouse and Isabella's concerns over and interest in air quality really tells us about their character? Because I, th- I think Austin is setting this up as a way to examine character, especially because it's a father-daughter comparison.
2: Totally, right? They're both complete worry wards, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Anxious dispositions. Mr. Woodhouse relies very heavily on the advice of Mr. Mm-hmm. Perry, who whose name is mentioned a zillion <laughs> times at least, the apothecary who seems inclined to, you know, sort of entertain Mr. Woodhouse's neuroticism at mm-hmm. times, I think. And Isabella, I imagine, just inherited her her father's gift for prophylactic worry, is how I would, you know, describe them in some ways, like my grandmother, prophylactic worrier. <laughs> and, you know, when Isabella has a husband to sort of temper her, mm-hmm. just in the way that Mr. Woodhouse has Emma mm-hmm. to, you know, sort of soothe his concerns. Well,
0: I think it's really, really fascinating the way that the Isabella and Mr. Woodhouse kind of set up these apothecaries as dueling apothecaries. You know, the fact that she is so heavily reliant on Mr. Wingfield and that she actually kind of sets him up as a foil to Mr. Perry. Um, The fact that this is something that like, the further, you know, the more that Mr. Woodhouse kind of starts to preach the gospel of Perry, she is just as adamantly hanging on to, according to Mr. Wingfield. and it's And it's, again, I think that this is so maybe revealing about the way that Isabella grew up. Like you get yourself an apothecary and then you stick with them. I don't know.
1: Well, I especially love it with Mr. Woodhouse, though, because it's pretty transparent that half of the stuff from Mr. Perry is really from Mr. Woodhouse. Mr. Woodhouse is like, well, you know, Mr. Perry said, a.k.a. I said.
2: <laughs> so- right. And maybe some of Isabella, as you said, the sort of dueling apothecaries, and maybe Isabella is really just reacting because she's defensive, right? She's got children. She's trying to to oh no, no, no. You know, Wingfield says that it's fine. You know, the air is fine. It's not nearly as bad as you think it is, kind of thing. Just because she she shares some of the fears but wants to defend herself and her family.
1: It is like that relative at the family gathering who's just questioning all your choices and you're kind of like, I I don't what do you want me to tell you? Like this right. is my job. Right. This is where I live. You know what I mean? Like really right. basic things that aren't things that are just easy to change that is where John Knightley's job is that's where they live what are they
2: supposed to do right right exactly
0: you know Rena you pointed it out that that she also very clearly especially in the passage that we read talks about it like you know i'm am thinking about my children like the fact that she's kind of almost having to to kind of defend it as a parent you know that that i of course i'm conscious of these things for mm-hmm. my children don't think that that's not a factor
2: imagine if she was on like a facebook mom's group oh my gosh <laughs> you know, like oh well you know i only take my children to where the air is good Is good and then she'd have 400 moms jumping all over her case about
0: mm-hmm. That. Mm-hmm.
2: and again attacking like like how dare you live in brunswick
0: square instead of hartfield when it's like again right. it's like nothing we can do about that gotta live
2: where i gotta live <laughs> so mr woodhouse is sort of playing the role of the obnoxious mommy group <laughs> <laughs> that fits with this character though like i
0: yeah yeah, this works. Yep, mm-hmm. I can see that for him for sure. <laughs> <laughs> not not only is he kind of in that in that mode, but he's also it's obnoxious because he's actually kind of right. Like Rena was saying, it's like the air quality is right. bad, but you know we can't all live Perry's gospel. It's really it's really not something doable <laughs> for all.
2: Right, and there are trade offs. Right, I mean I. It, it's just, it he, it extends to sort of everything in his life. It's like if it were just these couple of fairly well-reasoned, legitimate concerns, you could raise them and that would sort of be the end of it. But he takes pleasure in this, again, this prophylactic worry. Uh, kind of
1: along those lines. Do you see any other connections to concerns over health, air quality, illness that you see in Austin's other works, particularly as regards epidemiology and our Different understanding of how disease
2: spreads. Yeah, I think the themes about the quality of the air and the the strength of one's constitution and their tendencies toward, you know, frailty or ill health are common throughout Austin's works. Illness is used as a plot device to bring people in and out of certain situations or interactions with one another, right? So in Emma Harriet's ulcerated sore throat meant she couldn't join the dinner with everyone in the neighborhood at Randall's. And deaths obviously do this, too. So Mrs. Churchill had a long history of Mm -hmm. illness that many thought was feigned um, in some ways or, you know, sort of a nervous temper. And then when she suddenly dies, right, that opened the opportunity for Frank Churchill to reveal his engagement to Jane Fairfax and get his uncle's approval to marry My favorite example of illness as a plot device is actually from Pride and Prejudice, where Jane catches a cold riding over to Bingley's, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And Mrs. Bennett is thrilled because it throws the two of them together over the course of a couple of days, and this will surely lead Bingley to fall in love with her. And her sister, Elizabeth, is very concerned and actually fearful for her health, especially over the couple of days, right, as it progresses. But Mrs. Bennett effectively calls it a trifling cold. It's nothing to be, (laughs) you know, worried about and just sees it as something of a convenient circumstance, right, to throw the young people together. But under other circumstances, having a cold, you know, with her nervous temper, you know, she might have seen it a little differently. So the, you know, using illness and death as Plot devices is so common across the works. And I, I always find the Pride and Prejudice example to be really funny because I think Mrs. Bennett is hilarious yeah. as a character um, and a hypocrite, of course. <laughs> but again, that, you know, because the germ theory hadn't quite taken hold, this idea of like, you know, that cold maybe spreading just doesn't really emerge, mm-hmm. you know, as part of the narrative. And so that that's interesting, I think.
1: Kudos to Mama Bennett for being like, cold.
2: Or instant (laughs) house party. Right. If she has to be sick, she might as well, you know, be sick somewhere else, (laughs) be sick at Bingley.
0: We kind of touched on this a little bit briefly in our episode on Marianne's dead leaves. The fact that Marianne just like falls ill. Again, it's a plot device. It's one where, you know, she falls ill at the Palmer's estate. And again, in the films, they make it they make it a big deal. Like, it's just like, oh, this is horrible. In the films, it's an opportunity to let the heroes really shine. Whereas in the books, it's kind of just very Marianne got sick, you know, and
1: wet stockings, wet
2: shoes. It's very mundane in the book. Yeah, And actually, I didn't count how many times that kind of warning was in Emma, but it's a, a lot. lot. That's yeah.
0: Now I need to go back and count that because I feel I feel like especially when Isabella is visiting, like we talked about how how obviously they're, they're a little bit. They're feeding off of each other, right, with, with the dueling apothecaries, but also their tendencies are being like seen by another person and taken seriously by another person. So it's almost like this bonding experience for Isabella and her father to just constantly talk about bad air. You know, we all have our bizarre family rituals, but that's
2: apparently the way that they do it. It's like a hobby for both of them. And then when they get together, they could just, it's even better because somebody understands like your geeky passion. Right. Yes. <laughs> They're a little codependent in their prophylactic worry, yes. for sure.
0: Can we put that in needle, needle point? <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Rita, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion. This was just. You know, you wouldn't think that we would just be so delighted to talk about bad air (laughs) and disease and whatever, but that's just the kind of podcast we are.
2: (laughs) Yep, pretty much. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Where can people find you online? Is there anything that you'd like people to know about? That sort of thing?
2: Sure. My most frequent stomping ground for obnoxious opinions is on Twitter, and I can be found there at epi underscore rena. And I look forward to continuing to hear this podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you again so much. It was truly what a delight. Absolutely. You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. And this week we want to read this review from JQLMMPH. Not quite sure if it's a acronym or if I'm supposed to be reading <laughs> that somehow. My apologies, but a lovely listener in New Zealand who said highly recommend an entertaining and detailed look at some oft-missed details in austin's novels thank you so much for that very kind review and if you out there listening would like to give us a five-star review and just make our day you can do that by heading on over to apple podcasts and click those five stars and if you would like also add that positive review we really appreciate it thank
0: you And next week, we are taking a break for the holidays, but stay tuned for the next episode in which we will be talking about Colonel Brandon's flannel waistcoat.
1: Thanks for listening. Bye.